I've noticed a number of peculiar incidents among the members of the student body, all having to do with rock and roll music. Now, if you don't think this song is the greatest song ever, I will fight you. He brought the funk with James Brown and George Clinton, and now bassist Bootsy Collins walks us down memory lane. I'm Greg Cotta of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. Today, we explore the history of funk with the great Bootsy Collins. And later on, we'll review the new solo album by Fleetwood Mac's Lindsey Buckingham. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And now it's time for some music news. It's so funny how we don't talk anymore. It's so funny why we don't talk anymore. But I love That is Cliff Richard, a pioneering British rock and roll artist who is behind a major change in copyright law in Europe. The European Council, which represents the major European governments, has just voted to extend copyright on sound recordings to 70 years from 50 years. So that's a pretty big deal, Jim. I mean, we're talking about some major artists here, right? Well, absolutely. In addition to Cliff, and it's being called Cliff's Law, and other 50s performers, you have those first-generation British invasion superstars, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Who, the Kinks. Very lucrative recordings. Let's not forget ABBA. I mean, oh, ABBA, we're absolutely. talking about some big money here. Critics are saying that this law is not really going to help most artists. What it is designed to do is help those big corporations retain copyright and revenue. So the major artists, the Stones, etc., the Beatles, who have their back catalogs in circulation, will continue to gain revenue from them. The big corporations will continue to gain revenue. But the middle or smaller tier artists are not going to see a lot of money from this, mainly because a lot of their recordings aren't even available. The record companies don't see fit to release a lot of this stuff because it didn't really make a lot of money for them, so that stuff will remain buried. Had this law not been passed, a lot of these recordings by the Beatles and the Stones would have entered public domain, which means that anybody could have used them in any way they saw fit. A chaotic environment, but maybe a little bit more freeing for some of these smaller-tier artists who would have seen their recordings back in circulation again. Now, in the U.S., there is this provision of the copyright law that went into effect in the mid-'70s that basically allows artists, after 35 years, to apply two years in advance to retain the copyright for their songs. In other words, after 35 years, the copyright provisions expire, and an artist like a Billy Joel or a Bruce Springsteen or a Funkadelic or a Donna Summer, a lot of whose copyrights are about to expire can say to the record companies, no, I want to pull it back, I want to retain my copyrights, and basically do what I want with these recordings. One of the most recent developments in this provision is that Victor Willis, remember him, original lead singer of The Village People, laugh all you want, but they had a ton of hit songs. He wants to retain publishing for 32 of his songs, including 
YMCA. Now, the publishers of those songs, Scorpio Music and Can't Stop Productions, are pretty unhappy about this because they're going to lose a huge revenue stream. So they're arguing in a Los Angeles court that they employed the singer and the songwriter on a work-for-hire basis, and he has no ownership rights. In other words, he was just an employee. He was not an individual independent artist who has a claim to these songs. And this is the same argument that the big record companies are going to use to prevent Bruce Springsteen and Donna Summer and Billy Joel from retaining the rights to their recordings as well. So we are shaping up for a major court battle here as these music companies try to hang on to their lifeblood, their songs. I am the world's forgotten boy The one who searches and destroys Craig, people who follow internet rights issues are familiar with Google getting pressure from countries like China and some of the Middle Eastern states to not provide all the information that the world's biggest search engine can provide. You don't expect Britain to be attacking Google on the same grounds. But the British government is taking aim at Google in order to, it says, protect artists from illegal file sharing. The culture secretary, Jeremy Hunt, is saying he is going to pressure the company to stop allowing searches to turn up file sharing sites. You know, you search for an artist and among the first 20 hits on your Google search are a bunch of sites offering illegal downloads of that work. Says Jeremy Hunt, we intend to take measures to make it more and more difficult to access sites that deliberately facilitate infringement, misleading consumers and depriving creators of a fair reward for their creativity. And if the pressure doesn't work, they're ready to legislate and make it a law. Google is a bit outraged. It argues that it already removes millions of links to pages that infringe copyright around the world every year. It says that 57% of the takedown notices it receives, people complaining about illegal file sharing links turning up, are sent by businesses targeting competitors. And 37% of those requests are invalid. The statement from Google... Google has industry-leading measures to fight online piracy. We work hand-in-hand with copyright owners to remove infringing material from search results. Without a court order, any copyright owner can already use our removals process to inform us of copyright infringement. So Google is positioning this as a free speech issue. The British government is positioning it as an artist's rights issue. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out and if the controversy crosses the pond and builds here in the U.S. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and it's time to get deep into the world of funk music. 
What better place to start than with that song right there, James Brown and Cold Sweat in 1967. I think you can go back to some earlier James Brown songs like Out of Sight in 64 and Papa's Got a Brand New Bag in 65 where he was really experimenting with this new sound, but uh, Cold Sweat is where he really said, chord changes, who needs those stinking chord changes? I'm going to play the song about rhythm. It's all about the rhythm superseding melody and harmony. And that's really where funk is at. Here we're talking about a precursor of disco, a precursor of hip-hop, a huge influence on artists like David Bowie and Red Hot Chili Peppers. But really, uh, let's talk about the origins of this music. That's where we're going to focus on here. And you've got to start with James Brown, the whole notion of that rhythm section. He said it best in uh, Funky Drummer. He says, give the drummer some. Clyde Stubblefield taking that song away, essentially turning an entire song over to his drummer and putting the emphasis on that beat, the downbeat instead of the upbeat. That was the key transition here rhythmically. We also saw a transition into this era of the black band. Before it was about vocal groups in a lot of ways. With James Brown and then later on with Dyke and the Blazers doing Funky Broadway in 1967, Sly and the Family Stone, Charles Watson, the 103rd Street Rhythm Band in Los Angeles, you started to see this transition towards bands and this group sound. And of course, we cannot have this discussion, Jim, without mentioning Parliament Funkadelic. Absolutely. If you want to trace the beginnings and the development and where funk has gone, there's only one guest. It's Bootsy, baby. (laughs) Okay? Born William Collins in Cincinnati, 1951. He was kicking around in essentially a garage band with his brother, guitarist Catfish. When he gets hired by James Brown at the height of Brown's superstardom in 1970, they only gig with Brown for 11 months, but they change the entire musical spectrum by really giving birth to funk. Then he follows that by joining forces with George Clinton in Parliament Funkadelic. Dozens of records, countless tours, really making history as part of that ensemble, having his own ensemble, Bootsy's Rubber Band. But Bootsy has never stopped, Greg. Younger people may know him primarily as the star of the video for Groove is in the Heart by D-Light. <laughs> He's the outer space alien playing the bass with those wild glasses. He's appeared on dozens of recordings by other artists. And when he made an album called The Funk Capital of the World, everybody from Ice Cube to Samuel L. Jackson agreed to take his and make a guest appearance. Bootsy, thanks for joining us. Let's start with the word itself. Do you remember when you first heard funk? Well, actually, um, I heard it, you know, like in in the streets, you know. Um, It wasn't pertaining to music, but, you know, it was like, ooh, that smells funky or (laughs) something like that. So I've heard the term a lot before we actually start relating it to the music. And when did you start hearing it being applied to music? I think it was hearing James Brown say it. And then he went on to say, uh, use it in the term, the funky drummer and, you know, things like that. And I think he was the one that threw it out there and it it caught on. Well, before we get to the Brown years, you had a band, right, called the Pacemakers, late 60s, 68? Yeah. With with Catfish, your older brother. I've seen that described as a funk band, but you're saying the funk really came in with Brown in the early 70s. What did the, the Pacemakers sound like? It was Stax. It was Motown. It was uh, Lonnie Mack. He was uh, a guitarist who actually um, played a lot of instrumentals, which helped turn me on to playing guitar along with my brother. So I would have to say it was a lot of different mixtures of music that was going on at the time, and we was playing some of all of it. And once we got with James Brown, I think that's when it established 
us as being a funk band. The story goes that James Brown fired his previous band. He had enough of them. There was pay disputes, etc. March 1970, basically took the pacemakers wholesale, brought you guys in and made you guys the new JBs. Is that how it worked? Yeah, yeah. That's pretty much what happened. Um, When they actually asked us to do this, we didn't know that we were, we would just say, crossing the picket line, you know, (laughs) (laughs) because these were our heroes. You know, this was the band we would go over to King Records and wait for. We definitely wasn't into coming to take their gig. And I think James Brown knew that. And the way he brought us in was kind of sneaky, you know. Um, but at the same time, uh, once we got there, we start realizing, oh, okay, so this is what's going down. Before that, we just thought we was going to open up for the James Brown show because he had <laughs> us out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had us out on the road with Marvel Whitney, had us out with uh, Hank Ballard. This was way before we got with him. But he must have heard something in you, Bootsy, because his sound, he never sounded quite like he did when you and your brother were in the band for those, for those 10, 11 months in 1970, early 71. I mean, Get Up, I Feel Like Being a Sex Machine was just a really revolutionary sound. Get on up, get on up, get on up, stay on the scene. Get on up, like a sex machine. Get on up, get up, get on up, get up, get on up, stay on the scene. Get on up, like a sex machine. Did he instruct you in any way, or was that something that just came out of you when when you said, "Okay, let's go in the studio. We're going to make this record." <laughs> I mean, look at the look at the bass part, and then look at where he previously came from. In a way, that's why I think he had had me there. You know, that certain energy that was happening then, the raw, right off the street, in and out of sync thing. You know, um, you know, he saw that in me and. Uh, he saw it in Catfish. So he, what he did with us was school us on the one. And as long as we gave him that, he gave us the freedom to do what we wanted to do. That's exactly what we did. Because he wanted to hear what we heard. And I thought that was a, a privilege in itself because I knew the previous band, he would kind of go by and kind of give them instructions. He didn't instruct us. Mm-hmm. You know, it was more like, uh, uh, l- let me hear what you what what you feeling right here. What you what are you feeling? Now, Bootsy, for people who aren't musicians, and even for many who are, this mysterious way that the rhythm unfurls in funk, with the emphasis on the one. Can you explain that? Well, it it kind of uh, for me, it kind of locked me into something I always had to come back to, because I was one that. I love to experiment and learning how to play on a guitar. I didn't have no idea about how to play bass until I got with James Brown. Um, And then when he explained the one to me, that kind of made me lock into, okay, if I do all of this thing that I do, but I come back to the one, that's what James Brown wants. In rock and roll, it's about two and four. Boom, snap, boom, boom, snap. So funk is what? Everyone is one. Right. One. So everything is on the one. One and three instead of two and four. Yeah. Watch me. 
People like Maceo Parker, who are really good musicians, would say they had a real difficult time understanding that concept because it was so against the grain of what most musicians have been taught. And I guess what you're saying, Bootsy, is that you really hadn't been taught all this music theory. Well, actually, I hadn't been taught anything because (laughs) everything that I learned was just me being out there listening, Mm -hmm. you know. And so I didn't have all those rules and regulations that applied to music or really anything else. Well, you had this amazing run with with James in in that one year. Get up, I feel like being a sex machine. Soul power, talking loud and saying nothing. Super bad. know you were like in a revolution no one else is doing anything like this no it we couldn't even get past the, the fact that we were james brown mm-hmm. i mean forget about the music we playing i'm with james <laughs> brown did y'all see this mm-hmm. you know so i'm not really thinking about musically what that's doing to everybody and of course you never made him happy mm. because after the show you know he'd always bring us back in the back room and say uh eh. Son, you just ain't got it. You just ain't got the one. You know, and no matter how much we killed him, no matter how much we wore the crowd out, no matter how much in excitement, it was the same rap all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, ah, son, you ain't got it. You ain't got it. You know, and and I realized about halfway through my stay there that either he's crazy or he just don't uh, want to um, say we got it going on. It's one of the two, and I just came up with the fact that he's just crazy. We're going to continue talking funk with Bootsy Collins in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And then Greg and I will review the latest solo effort from Fleetwood Mac's Lindsey Buckingham.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And this episode is all about the funk. We've been talking with bassist, singer, songwriter, and funk legend Bootsy Collins about the roots of the music and his own career. His new album is called The Funk Capital of the World. Bootsy, after backing James Brown in the 70s with the JBs, your next move was to Detroit to start working with George Clinton. How'd that come together? Well, actually, we get a call um, from the Spinners who initiated the move and who initiated the whole thing about hanging in Detroit. They wanted us to come up to be their band. You know, we we wanted to go up there and be the band for the Spinners, but at the same time, we were so sick and tired of playing behind singers. We wanted to actually be a band. You know, we wanted to be freaks, you know? We wanted to be the first band. We wanted to be uh, one of the main bands that that just freaks everybody out. And um, when we get there, we run into this girl named uh, Malia Franklin. We playing at a club, and she says, uh, man, have y'all ever heard of Funkadelic? And we was like, uh, you know, we kind of hear about them every now and then, every gig or two we come across and people say we look and sound like Funkadelic. She told us that uh, we need to meet George Clinton. I told her to go ahead and set it up because um, he sounded like somebody I wanted to meet. Sure enough, went over and met with him and man, that was a freaky, uh, that was a (laughs) freaky deal. I mean, to go to George Clinton's house and knock on the door and the door opens like, um, you know, one of those haunted house kind of screeches. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing, that, the Adams Family thing. Mm-hmm. And I walk in and I look around, it's like black lights everywhere and no furniture. And then I see this thing sitting over in the corner, you know. <laughs> and it's George <laughs> with a sheet on. <laughs> oh, man. So as soon as I saw that, I knew. I was like, yeah, this is this is it for me. Everything we talked about, we set out to do. What a contrast, though, it must have been, going from James Brown, who would fine, I guess, band members for not having their pants creased yeah. properly, to this yeah. guy, who was a total freak, as you said. I mean... Well, well, you know, what what happened was we had to make a choice. After that meeting, you know, it was like the Spinners had brought us up there, and George wasn't even in the conversation. And thank God that that happened, because I told Felipe that he should go with the Spinners, because they needed a lead singer and a band. And we went on with Funkadelic. Now, Bootsy, one of the things that's always fascinated me was that cross-pollination. People don't think of the psychedelic explosion as having had a lot to do with funk. And yet, George was really drawing both from that open-minded attitude of, you know, we'll we'll use a sitar, we'll use a synthesizer, we'll use anything. And some of the drugs, as I said, he'd he'd gone up and, and partied with Tim Leary. Describe that that open-minded attitude and that notion of we're going to be the first black people from space. Yeah, well, it was kind of like, I guess, the the tip of the hippie, trippy days. We caught the backside of that and wanted to 
make it cool, wanted to make it hip for black people. As you know, even with Jimi Hendrix, a lot of the blacks didn't understand what he was doing and where he was coming from with that. And I would like to think that we kind of took that same infusion, that same psychedelic thing, and just made it cool, made it hip, because black people at that time had a struggle with who they really were, who we really were. And eventually, we put so much happy in the blues that people started liking it. You know, funk to me is a happy blues. It's an uplifting form, and that's the form that we took. One nation under a groove Getting down just for the bunk of it One nation and we're on the move Nothing can stop us now One nation One nation under a groove Getting down just for the bunk of it One nation put some jokes in there, had fun with it. And George was so on top of it with the lyrical thing that it was amazing. He was the one that got me to reading about cloning back in those days, about the pyramids back in those days, you know. And George was just such an open-minded character. And so I looked at it like I would deal with music and I would deal with the world the same way I dealt with wearing clothes. I'd wear anything, (laughs) you know. And I wouldn't care because that's the way, that's kind of the way I was brought up. I had to wear certain things because I had to wear them. It was like I couldn't afford, you know, what the Joneses had on. So I had to wear stuff from the Goodwill and stuff that was mismatched and the colors wasn't right and this, that, and the other. So I was kind of used to that. So when I got with with George, it was a a privilege to be able to mismatch colors and you know, just act a fool. That was an <laughs> opportunity that I had been looking for. It was pure pleasure. Yeah, those shows definitely had that vibe, the mothership uh, landing on stage at those arenas in the 70s, one of the biggest (laughs) bands in the world at the time with these spectacular shows that nobody's seen the likes of since. In some ways, it must have been as surreal to be a part of that as it was to watch it. It actually was. I mean, every night it was like a different event. That was something that you couldn't fake. That was something that was just unreal. You're looking up. You're on stage and you're looking up and it's coming down. It's like, wow, man. I wouldn't exchange that for nothing in the world. So, Bootsy, if you're new to funk and new to Parliament Funkadelic, where would you recommend someone start? There are so many recordings and they all have these amazing covers. What are the recordings that that hold up best for you? Wow. Oh, man. For me, I would guess... Maggot brain? Ah, That's where I started, yeah. (laughs) All right. Yeah, yeah.
like the mothership landing. It's it was like the epitome of that transcendental spiritual thing that happens. Not only musical notes, but it's that spiritual thing that comes along with with the music. You're feeling the music, but at the same time, you're feeling something else. And that something else, I call it that spirituality of the music, and it comes from somewhere else. That somewhere else, I'm just glad to be able to be a transmitter Mm -hmm. of that somewhere else because it comes through. At some point, you have to realize that that's what you're being used for. Eddie Hazel was that kind of transmitter. Even though he wasn't known, say, like a Jimi Hendrix or Santana, but at the same time, he was on that level, spiritually and musically. I think you made a great point there, too, uh, Bootsy, with uh, the whole idea of, of breaking down these boundaries. Eddie Hazel being this kind of rock-oriented guitar player, almost, in this funk band. And yeah. uh, later on, I think Funkadelic had a song on the, on the One Nation Under a Groove album, the, Who Says a Funk Band Can't Play Rock? That's right. It's That's right, right in the song title. It yeah. seemed like this band, there were no boundaries for this band in terms of what kind of music it would play. Well, I think, I think that was George's whole idea was to expose that fact. And for those who were really paying attention, got it. Even though we wasn't getting as much play as, say, the whoever was hot when we were coming up. And and just like I was telling you about James with the getting paid and, you know, it was more about the music and what we could do and what we could bring to the table because George wasn't paying nobody. I mean, you know, um, and at that particular time, it wasn't no big deal. Well, it was a bewildering series of projects that you were involved in. Jim mentioned Parliament and Funkadelic. In addition, there was like Parlet, the Horny Horns, the Brides of Funkenstein, yeah. and we have to mention yeah. Bootsy's Rubber Band, which uh, I think just defining the funk era, I don't think any band did it better than, than you did. That was kind of your own thing. Your yeah, songwriting yeah. really came to the fore. I mean, huge hits with things like uh, Bootzilla and, and the yeah. Pinocchio Theory. Where did that come from? Well, that was kind of our agreement when I told you we, you know, I walked into the uh, Adams family. Well, let's call it George's family <laughs> house. When I walked in there, that was kind of the agreement. He wanted me to help him with all of these projects, Parlette, Funkadelic, and Brad's and all of that hadn't came up yet. It was mainly Parliament Funkadelic and my own project. Those are the three projects that we talked about. And he said if I go out on the road with him, if I go in the studio with him and and cut these tracks, he would get me a record deal. And once I started doing that, I put everything into what George wanted because it felt like it was me. And doing that, 
George began to trust me, and he began to let me do things like going in the studio by myself and putting ideas down and writing more songs. It was a match, man. I mean, it was the kind of match that I think every kid would want for an older brother to, to trust his younger brother, you know? band left a huge legacy in the 70s, Bootsy. You are still very much involved in the game. You've got a, a new album, The Funk Capital of the World. Not many people could get away with calling their album The Funk Capital of the World. I have a feeling <laughs> you probably have as much credibility as anyone. Not only that, you are a professor of Funk University, which you established yeah. in 2010, <laughs> which is just blowing my mind. Where is funk at today? I mean, you hear the influence in so many styles of music, whether it's Outkast, Lil Wayne, yeah. the Dirty South thing, some of the West Coast hip-hop had a heavily funkadelic influence. Is it as, as healthy and innovative as it was back in the day? I think so, but the whole thing is it's not being called funk, and it's not situated in the arena anymore like it like it was. It was a, it was a new form when we actually made it legal. James <laughs> Brown, I think, brought it up. I think George Clinton, along with Parliament Funkadelic, made it something cool and hip and legal to say and be a part of. That part of it did its course. I think that part of it did what it was supposed to do. And now it's kind of like branching off into to other things. And so I don't think it will ever be what it was because it was so new. But I do feel like it's going to help branch off into new and more constructive forms of music. And as long as I'm around, I definitely want to be a part of that. And so that's what um, the funk capital of the world is all about. And that's what uh, the funk university is all about. Spreading that funk. <laughs> you know, no matter what you call it, it's still the one. Don't take my funk. Hey, Bobby. Uh, it's a sad thing when somebody funk with your funk. Don't take my funk. <laughs> We've had the pleasure of talking with Bootsy Collins on Sound Opinions. Bootsy, it's been great to have you on the show. Oh, man, this was awesome, man. Thank you, cats, man. And uh, uh, let's keep it on the one, Bobble. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Sound Opinions, and we've been talking about the early days of funk. Greg, we like to end these shows by each playing a track we love. What have you got? 
Jim, I want to focus on a key band and a key track uh, from 1969, the Isley Brothers. One of our favorite bands on Sound Opinions, they have managed to have a hit in six decades. Very few bands can manage that kind of a feat. But the Isley Brothers were key in the transition from R&B and soul into funk in the late 60s. For one thing, the band retooled. They were basically a Motown vocal group for much of the 60s. They had some minor success there, but they decided to cut the ties to Motown because I, I think they always felt like a second-tier act behind you know Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, The Supremes, The Temptations. And they said, you know what, we can do this on our own. And that was a key move for them. The three founding members of the band, Ronnie, Rudolph, and O'Kelly, Isley, formed a new band. Basically said, okay, we're, we're still the Isley Brothers, but let's bring in our younger kid siblings here. We're talking about Marvin and 16-year-old Ernie Isley, plus Rudolph's brother-in-law, Chris Jasper. And in an instant, they became a self-contained band. I think this is a key uh, part of this whole funk movement, the idea of the self-contained band. Not only a self-contained band, but a band with its own record label, Teaneck, going off and writing, producing, basically recording all the music in-house. And the key moment for them marking this transition was the song that I'm going to play, It's Your Thing, in 1969. Not only did they become this much funkier group with young 16-year-old Ernie playing bass, of all things. He was originally hired as a drummer for the group. They said, no, 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 you're playing that bass line amazingly well. Why don't you just stick with that for a moment? Later on, of course, he went on to become the lead guitar player in the Isley Brothers. So here he is playing bass. And what they did was create sort of a crossroads sound. Here was the psychedelic rock that they were being influenced by, Ernie in particular, his friend Jimi Hendrix, who had played with the Isley Brothers for a few years before going on to greater things. Black power soul music, the message in the music. This is a key part of funk as well. It's your thing. Do it any way you want. Freedom, baby. It's all up to you. The Isley Brothers were celebrating their own freedom, getting away from Motown. And then you had that incredible emphasis on the rhythm, particularly Ernie Isley's bass line on this song. It was a great moment for uh, funk music. It was a great moment for the Isley Brothers. This song has been covered 60 times. James Brown himself paid it the highest compliment by interpolating it for his own particular song, My Thang, in 1974. Mm. So even James Brown said, yeah, I can feel the funk in this song. Isley Brothers with It's Your Thing from 1969 on Sound Opinions. It's your thing Do what you want to do
That is the Isley Brothers with It's Your Thing, one of the key funk tracks of all time as far as I'm concerned. Jim, what track do you want to highlight? Well, Greg, since you were going to the beginning of the funk era, I thought I'd go towards the end. I mean, funk never really has died, as Bootsy said, as we would contend, but it did mutate into disco, where that became the dominant force on the charts. I was thinking of one of two bands, either Cool and the Gang from my native Jersey City, New Jersey, or the Ohio Players. Also from Ohio, like Bootsy. I don't know what they had in the water down there. I'm going to go with the Ohio players to illustrate another key instrument. Actually, two more key instruments in funk. There was also the horns. And the Ohio players were all about those heavy horns, slinky, horn-driven grooves. Every bit as important as the bass and drums. You know, their history is similar. Came together in Dayton in the late 50s. Were sort of a soul band, a little bit garage. Mutate into a funk group in the late 60s, early 70s as funk is coming into being. Break up in 70, all go back home to Ohio, come back together again, and then the really golden era begins. The key track is from 73, Funky Worm, from the album Pleasure. Okay, right before that, they put out an album called Pain, and a word must be said about the covers of the Ohio Player (laughs) albums. Boy, in many record stores, they had to be behind plain brown paper. Funky Worm isn't about the horns, isn't about the bass or the drums, it's about the Moog synthesizer. The incredible, fat, heavy Moog groove. It's been sampled by everybody in hip-hop in recent years, from Too Short to Dr. Dre to Exhibit and the Game. And, you know, if you call a song Funky Worm, it better sound like a funky worm. And this does. You know what I'm saying? Here are the Ohio players on Sound Opinions with Funky Worm. She's here, Mr. Johnson. Thank you very much. Granny, they're expecting you. You're a little late, so come right this way. Start right in. What? Say it now. Say it now. Yeah. Me and the Ohio players gonna tell you about a worm. He's the funkiest worm in the world. Okay, say it, fellas. There's a worm in the ground. Yes, it is.
wrapping up our talk about funk, that was the Ohio Players and Funky Worm. So we have to ask you, are you a student of the Funk University? Even if you're not, we want you to share your thoughts, memories, and favorites on the air. Call 888-859-1800. Coming up, Jim and I are going to review the latest by Lindsey Buckingham. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that is the title track of the new solo album from Lindsey Buckingham, Seeds We Sow. Lindsey Buckingham, Greg, almost doesn't need an introduction. Started out in the early 70s as part of a folky Brian Wilson-type pop duo, Buckingham Nicks, with Stevie Nicks. Joins Fleetwood Mac in 1974. Helps remake that band sound and is part of some of the best-selling records of the 70s as a result has made solo albums throughout his career not exactly prolific often long stretches go between lindsey buckingham solo albums but people are devoted to the music lindsey makes and love records like law and order out of the cradle in 92 you know fleetwood mac is together, Fleetwood Mac takes a hiatus, in between, Lindsay makes solo albums. We haven't had one since 2008 with Gift of Screws. Now comes Buckingham's newest, Seeds We Sow. For the first time, really stepping out from under the major label umbrella, putting this out on his own imprint, Mind Kit. What kind of music has Lindsay Buckingham given us? We're going to give our opinions on it in a minute, but first we wanted to play a song from this new disc. It's called That's the Way Love Goes on Sound Opinions. I'd like to take your pain away, 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 away. I'd like to take your shame away, 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 away. I lie alone and watch you sleep. I'd reach for you, but I'm my whip. If you should tell me, I must keep away, away, away. In the dark, you will. Couldn't believe it, no. Took a look in the 
behind your shade The colors fade away, away, away The diamond falls, the hand is dealt Upon the shrine where we once knelt Oh how I wish this veil could melt Away, away, away That is, that's the way love goes from the new Lindsey Buckingham solo record, Seeds We Sow, his third solo record in six years. Remarkably prolific later in his career. And I have to say, Jim, the connoisseurs of Fleetwood Mac appreciate these Buckingham solo records. I think they sell just an infinitesimal amount compared to the Fleetwood Mac brand name. I think that it all began really for him if you think about the Tusk record and those Buckingham almost so, little solo pieces that were tucked in the middle of that opus that Fleetwood yeah. Mac put out in 1979, he's got this weird streak in him. And I hear that in Seeds We Sow. There's this, there's this kind of weirdness, this kind of strange undertow to these beautiful songs that consistently pulls you in. You kind of realize not all is well with this guy. There's something a little <laughs> off about him. The other thing that he is excellent at is as a guitar player. He's often talked about the influence of, of the Kingston Trio, of all people, on his playing. And he sort of veers back and forth between these rock guitar chords and these kind of finger-pick things on his solo records. And he's really bringing those two voices together on the guitar on this record in a beautiful way. So I think that the fact that he's able to color these beautiful songs with these dark shades of lyrics, combining these elements as a guitar virtuoso, has turned this into a masterful pop record. Record, I give it by it rating on Seeds We Sow. Well, in contrast to you, Greg, I do not love Buckingham solo records, and I, I never loved Fleetwood Mac in the Buckingham era. You know, uh, Johnny Rotten famously surfaced with the Sex Pistols wearing the I Hate Pink Floyd hmm. t-shirt. He should have worn an I Hate Fleetwood Mac <laughs> t-shirt because, you know, Fleetwood Mac really epitomized 70s excess, repainting the color of hotel rooms and having have to have the right grand piano and everything was bombastic. Yeah, but There's the nothing more bombastic than Tusk. Yeah, the songs, but there was such egotism, Greg, and such over-the-top rock star silliness, and I think that infected many of Buckingham's solo albums as well. All of that having been said, this record, if you got it absent knowing that it was from Lindsay Buckingham or knowing any of the history of, of Fleetwood Mac and Buckingham, you might think that this is an Elephant Six revival record mm. in a way. I mean, this is a guy sitting in a basement studio recording in a very lo-fi way some very strange songs and, and finally not being afraid to let the freak flag fly high. Just listen to the way he covers the Rolling Stones She Smiled Sweetly. She's smiling anything but mm. in his version and yet it's still a gorgeous and beautiful song. And won't disappear My turning gray But she smiled sweetly She smiled sweetly She smiled sweetly And said don't worry 
I've listened to and respected Buckingham, but but never loved him. This record makes me a, a real hardcore fan. I, I love this record. I agree with your buy it. A double buy it for Lindsey Buckingham's Seeds We Sow. What do we have on the show next week? Jim, next week we have an interview and a live performance with the Montreal electro-rock duo Handsome Furs. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn with the able assistance of Annie Minoff and our fearless leader, our executive producer, our own funk master, if you will, is Tori Southside Malatia. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hi, this is Adam calling from San Francisco. I've been a listener for just about two years. Big fan of the show, but I have to say you guys are a little weak on the metal front. Case in point being your mention of Metallica's One as their sellout ballad, which actually I think what you meant was Nothing Else Matters from the Black Album. One was from Injustice for All and was very much in step with their series of ballad crunchers. I don't think most metalheads would consider that their sellout ballad. Just a source of contention. Thanks. Hey fellas, this is Chris. I'm calling from East Lansing, Michigan. I know I'm a week late, but I just wanted to comment on your review of the new Chili Peppers album. You know, I loved it and I hated it at the same time. I don't know what Rick Rubin is doing with this band. Everything after Blood Sugar album back in '91, uh, it's just been it's just going downhill really fast. And I laughed at the point with Anthony Kiedis. Half the time, he probably doesn't even know what the heck he's singing about. It's kind of silly, especially with Californication. Hey, this is Dominic from Brooklyn, New York. Just wanted to comment about the uh, Labor Day show. I really liked it. Wanted to throw in one of my own by Daniel Johnston and Jad Fair from an album they made called It's Spooky. Really always enjoyed the song from there called First Day at Work. It contains Johnston's sadness but comedic turn he makes regularly. Has the great line, your boss is being nice to you, but that's just for today. It's your first day at work. It's your first day at work.
simple song really hits the point I think thanks again guys and up the great work hi guys this is uh, Tom up from Minnesota just got done listening to your work song podcast first as a working class kind of guy I appreciate that you did a show all dedicated to the middle class of America which seems to be in a lot of trouble these days but I especially wanted to comment on the Bob Marley song night shift the sun shall not smite I by day, nor the moon by night, no, and everything that I do shall be up full and bright, and if it's all night, it got to be all right. I'm not a big Bob Marley fan, don't know much about a lot of his music, but I worked the night shift for uh, over 30 years, and it was... Uh, Interesting to hear Bob Marley had a song about just that very same thing. Who would have thought a 54-year-old white guy from Minnesota would have something uh, in common with the godfather of reggae? Thanks a lot, guys. Great show as always. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.